Hello, my name is Phil Lawler. I'm senior fellow at the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College, and I welcome you to my Book of the Month Club. Every month, I arrange to have a conversation with the author of a recently published book that I've found particularly interesting, something that offers a provocative perspective on one or more of the topics that are of particular interest to our center. Those topics are education in the liberal arts, the defense and promotion of marriage and family life, active Christian involvement in civic life, the arts, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. I hope these podcasts will stimulate further conversations as well as interest in our center. If you enjoy what you hear today, please check back to the website of the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture and take a look at some of our other conversations in this Book of the Month series, as well as other offerings from our center. Please also sign up for regular email notices about coming events, both online presentations and live events. Finally, if you're able, please support our work by making a contribution to the work of the center. You'll find a handy form on our website as well. All contributions are appreciated and all are tax deductible. Now on to this month's conversation. My guest this month is Jeffrey Tucker, the author of a new book, Liberty or Lockdown, published by the American Institute for Economic Research with a foreword by George Gilder. The book is a reflection on the consequences of the COVID lockdown. And in fact, that is the purpose of the Brownstone Institute is to alert people to what we have lost as a result of the strict policies uh, imposed as public health measures, the liberty that we have lost, and also the threat to our uh, fundamental freedoms and our fundamental self-government. You'll learn more about the Brown and Stone Institute as well as the book in the conversation that follows. Tell me a little bit about how you began the Brownstone Institute and why. Mm, I love this question. <laughs> well, you know, there are certain moments in the history of civilization. That's a, f a funny way to begin. But there are certain <laughs> moments in the, <laughs> in the history of, of humanity that are epic turning points. And they call us to rethink a lot of things. And I would say that lockdowns, for lack of a better term, really did amount to that. It's unleashed a kind of terrible things in the world, you know, a mass demoralization. It's uh, uh, raised fundamental questions about, you know, our faith as a, as a society, the foundations of what it is we believe we're supposed to be doing together, who's going to be in charge of us on what basis, what are our, our values, how seriously are we going to take science? I mean, all, all these things, and what lockdowns taught me was that I had personally massively underestimated the problems that existed previously in our political uh, culture and, and the culture in large. And so suddenly we just woke up one day and the ceiling fell in the and the floor fell out. And, <laughs> and so I started the Brownstone Institute to specifically to investigate uh, lockdowns, lockdown harms, the origins of lockdowns, lockdown ideology, and then 
along with that, the mandates and so on. But then in a broader sense, uh, public health in general and its relationship to human freedom. And then even more than that, you know, just examining the foundations of what we used to call a liberal society, which is another way of saying, I guess, modern civilization. And so I, I feel like Brownstone is pretty well poised to address these questions and for me it's a long-term project you know, i'm not just here as a lobbying organization to get rid of vaccine mandates or uh-huh. uh, other sort of public health restrictions i'm really looking at this as a long-term philosophical sort of project and intellectual sanctuary okay your book liberty a lockdown really is uh, a collection of essays from your work that is typical of what is happening with the Brownstone Institute um, in a critique of lockdown. And I I want to um, take issue with something you said early on in the book, and I don't think you'll object very much, where you talk about how the lockdown was, uh, I'm trying to think, did you say the most most extreme public policy, uh, the most extreme public policy in our lifetime or something like that? I forget exactly how you put it. I I put it much more strongly. I think it's the most extreme public policy ever, all out war accepted. And it it was done without debate and suddenly, and it was accepted. I mean, to say it was extreme in that the people imposing the lockdown knew that it would be devastating to society and did it anyway. I can't think of any precedent. Uh, Phil, I think you're right. I mean, when you when you look at the the this the scale, uh, uh, the scope, and just the sheer, I would say, sort of ambition of the lockdowns, I don't think anything has ever been tried like this before. In fact, I'm slightly embarrassed that I. I'm always pointing out that on um, um, February 28th, 2020, the New York Times ran an article called. Um, to take on the coronavirus, we have to go medieval on it. And I, you know, I've said ever since, well, that's a really bad idea. We don't want to go medieval on anything. But in a sense, we would have been way better off going medieval. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Than what we actually did, which was some sort of dystopian scientific, uh, I don't know, ideological fanaticism that goes beyond, in a way, it goes beyond the real life practice of communism. I think back to March 16th a lot, and that was the press conference at the White House with Fauci and Burks and and Trump sort of in the wings deferring to them. And uh, the press was, it's, I, I have the full transcript at Brownstone because I think it's a really historic moment. Um, that was the lockdown orders. Now, it's true the federal government can't actually lock down the economy, but there's no question that that's what they believed that they were doing, and they worked with health officials all over the country to make this happen uh, uh, in contradiction to uh, federalism and you know every, every prior practice. But it, the, the press was just sitting there confused and without any serious questions about it. And it, and it was just a crazy event, but right near the end, Deborah Burks, you know how right before people are leaving, they tell you, tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Deborah Burks says just in passing, what we're really going for here is that we want everyone to stay separate from everyone else. You know, it's 
revealing to think of going back to the medieval approach because I, I wasn't there. Uh, but it seems to me that the medieval approach would have been to try to help those who are sick and those who are most vulnerable and for the rest to get along with their lives as best they could, which is very sane. Well, they 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 had an overuse of uh, <coughs> quarantine powers in, in the Middle Ages, uh, you know, based on a kind of miasma, uh, miasma theory of disease so that. I think ships coming into harbors, you know, from from lands where they're in Italy, where you know where there there were plagues and things, had to stay in the harbor for forty days. It's, I guess that's where the, the idea of quarantine comes from. Um, but you know, the idea the idea of quarantine in the Middle Ages, which again, I think I think it's a brutal thing, and it probably doesn't work. But uh, but the idea of quarantining healthy populations, whole populations, healthy people was inconceivable i mean you would never do anything like that and no despot in the middle ages would ever dare impose something like that exactly well that's what i mean that it would be unthinkable quarantine the sick maybe and yeah, sure. uh, you quarantine the sick yeah that, that was that was the medieval approach and i you know i think in the 20th century we got a little smarter and we we realized that you know there's real dangers associated with that and it probably doesn't accomplish anything anyway especially for something like a, resp a respiratory virus like um, SARS-CoV-2, it might be useful and has been variously used for things like um, Ebola, okay, mm -hmm. uh, which has, you know, extreme severity, but very low prevalence. And those are always a trade-off between those two things. But And SARS-CoV-2 had um, low severity, but high prevalence. And again, that makes sense, which is to say that everybody was going to get COVID. Well, at the very outset of March 2020, um, all the elites, you know, from from China to the to the UK to the US to to everybody in the planet Earth, with the exception of you know Sweden and a couple other places, decided that the right amount of uh, infection from COVID is zero, and that's what we were going to do. And one of the architects of of the US uh, lockdowns, his name is Carter Meacher, and he's a, a, a medical doctor from Chicago who became a consultant with the Veterans Administration, um, told Michael Lewis, you know, who celebrates this guy in his, in his book, told Michael Lewis, he said, look, my theory is that if everyone would uh, stay in completely separate rooms so they were never allowed to be next to each other or speak to each other, we would fully eliminate disease from the planet Earth. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. that's very yeah. sensible. Yeah, it's that's... <laughs> There's a character in the novel Catch-22 uh, who, sa who says that he wants to spend his life, uh, the rest of his life, on a hospital table uh, with surgeons poised to operate at the first sign of trouble so that he'll live forever. And th that seems equally sensible. Uh, isn't it bizarre? The, uh, the mindset, the ideological mindset, the fanaticism, the... But as Thomas Sowell calls it, comes to the unconstrained vision of 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 today's intellectual elites that they could have ever dreamed up something like lockdown ideology as a solution to uh, a health problem. I think it's crazier than anything Marx ever came up with. Um, uh, these people have no regard for history, human nature, religious faith. Right. And the fact that they got away with it is amazing. And this was, Phil, this is two years ago. Um, 
you know, I I should have known. I, I think my book is is good, but I underestimated the, the the appalling extremism of these policies. I should have known when when U.S. Christian churches shut for Easter. Yes. Uh, sometimes voluntarily, but mostly under the force of law, <clears throat> with with very little protest uh, at all. You know that that's. That's evidence of a serious crisis of civilization. Easter, it, it, we're not going to we're not going to celebrate Easter. I mean, come on. I mean, uh, Easter represents the, the triumph of of life over death, of of exactly. faith, faith over. You know, it represents hope. I mean, for, in the whole of Christendom, you know, Easter represents that sort of that that hope of new life and and progress and prosperity and. And we just said, nah, let's not bother with it this year. Yeah, well, you know, I I wrote my my book on the whole mess, uh, Contagious Faith, because I came to the realization we were going to have a second Easter without normal celebration. And I, I, I just found that so intolerable and it shook me so deeply. But let me let me ask you a related question or seek your thoughts on it. Uh, a whole lot of Christian leaders explained their participation in the lockdown or their failure to object to it as a matter of charity, that we're being, uh, you know, we're being charitable to our fellow men by helping them to avoid the disease. No, you're and, destroying the, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. leaving I, that's aside. The biggest lie. That's the biggest lie. I, I despise that whole line because really this is just a ruling class racket. So what, what you have here in the history of egregious sociological experiments with disease is an attempt by the ruling class that imagines itself to be biologically clean to impose the burden of herd immunity, the pathogen, on the lessers. You know, the working classes, uh, minorities, the non-native speakers, uh, the people from other lands. And this has been true, you know, from from biblical biblical times all the way through the slaveocracies of the 19th century. And then, you know, even under a a kind of a a Hindu style system of, of castes, you know, that's all about that's all about disease and the separation of the clean and unclean. So. You know, for religious leaders to pretend as if they shut their their, their churches t- 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 to care for people, no, they're caring for themselves. I mean, that's just revealing. It's just revealing who they believe they are and what class of people they belong to. Because you know, the working classes in this country were never shut down; they were forced right. out uh, to be sandbags for the pathogen. And somebody has to bear this burden of disease. You know, when Jesus came. Uh, into the world. He shocked and scandalized everybody by eating with the lepers. That, what did that symbolize? I mean, it symbolized that he believed in the the equal dignity of everyone. And that even as a you know fairly high-born rabbi, he didn't believe that he uh, should experience the, 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 the privilege of, of, of pathogenically free life. You know, he thought that the burdens of the world should be shared by everyone. And, of, of course, especially him. So for religious leaders to say, man, we're just trying to keep people safe. I mean, that is just, that's a disgusting lie. You know, I mean. Well, it's it's wrong for, for another whole set of reasons, which is it was not charitable uh, to to destroy the economy. It was not charitable 
to lock the elderly in nursing homes where right. some of them were unable to understand why their loved ones weren't coming to see them. And it was a death sentence and they were going to die lonely. That wasn't charitable either. Uh, or to cancel uh, AA meetings that were taking place at your church, you know, or counseling sessions. Right? Uh, exactly. And the results are writ large in the statistics of the last couple of years, the drug overdoses, the, you know, the domestic violence, the abuses and the suicides. Uh, there were so many people left without the help they needed. Uh, and that's not charity. Uh, leaving aside, of course, the fact that the lockdown didn't really accomplish much in terms of curbing the spread of the disease. No, it, and and you saw it, in, you've seen it in China now. I mean, Wuhan was supposed to be this great uh, uh, experiment that succeeded. In fact, just this morning, Phil, I was going through the emails back and forth. NIH sent a delegation to China in February of 2020 to learn from their great uh, uh, achievement in, in controlling the spread of disease. But here we are two years later and you've got 26 million people in one of the world's largest financial capitals um, locked into their apartments and they're starving them, separating parents from children and, and shooting pets and so on. That is the end point of lockdown ideology. And it's it should shock all of your listeners or any reasonable, decent, humane person uh, to understand that we are host to a ruling class in this country that fell in love with China's solution in Wuhan, that thought it was the right way to go. And that the only problem with the United States is that we have too many institutional barriers to full lockdown. So what you're seeing in Shanghai right now is what they wanted for us. It's just true. That's frightening. And you speak of institutional barriers, but the institutional barriers didn't work very well. You spoke earlier about how the federal government, the president, the White House doesn't have the authority to impose a lockdown. But the lockdown was achieved uh, and the states went along and the federal government does have an awful lot of uh, bully power. And it was exerted on the states. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, I guess maybe I should expand, uh, sort of broaden my definition of institution. I don't mean like the Bill of Rights of the courts, because you're right, they completely flopped. I mean, the First Amendment didn't protect anybody's freedom of religion. Uh, uh, but I guess institutionally, I mean, like culturally, there were enough people in this country that just said, we're not going along with this. We 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 think this is, this is crank science, and, and I'm... And even if it's not, I'm not going to give up my faith, I'm not going to give up my life, I'm not going to give up my friendships and my right to travel and move around and, and, and live the kind of life I want. And so, you know, the biggest, the two biggest resistance organizations in the United States, as far as I know, in the early days were the, uh, um, the Orthodox Jews in, in New York, the Hasidim. Mm -hmm. who, you know, continued to hold their funerals and weddings and went on with their lives as always. And then the Amish, who never paid any attention to this at all. Well, I, I was just going to make an observation. I live out towards the countryside, and it seemed to me that there was a direct relationship between proximity to a city and urban center to, to, the, to the, <laughs> the thought police and severity of the lockdown. As you get out into the woods, people were much more, um, well, much more sane about going about their lives, partly because they could. They weren't being watched, and partly because there's a lot more going on out in the countryside that requires people to be out and about. Agriculture, obviously, uh, you, you can't have a lockdown and, and survive. 
I think there's right to that. In fact, Branston ran an article called something like how proximity makes progressives, something like that. Um, it's a pretty interesting reflection on the, you know, the ur- urban rural divide, but there was, I don't know, is it, is it your impression? I mean, you follow this stuff a lot more closely than I do, but my, my impression was that religious communities in this country were, were more, were quicker to open, uh, more skeptical of lockdown ideology, um, less compliant, whereas the fully secularized, highly educated Elites, you know, uh, the east, east and west coasts of, of Massachusetts and, um, and you know, Northern California, uh, these, these major, I think, highly secular areas um, were completely compliant. And they were, the, they were the, the red guard of the lockdowns and they, they did more than anybody else. I don't think there's any question in my mind about that. And I think it was revealing in religious communities, the ones there were some that, well, there are some that are still locked down uh, and there were some that never locked down. And that is revealing to me about uh, the strength of their faith, because uh, what else would it be? I think that's right. And also, you know, one of the things we experienced in 2020 was this, was this policing by the media all the time so that if churches gathered, they had to kind of gather in secret because they were afraid that CNN would show up. I think it was a church in Dallas that had your choir practice or something like that. And then some people got to uh, COVID and, and died. Right. Um, which may have happened with or without the pathogen, with or without choir practice, we don't actually know. But there was a kind of a national hysteria about it and a strange demonization of singing. Singing. <laughs> don't sing. Singing is spreading disease. This, yeah. I mean, when you sing, you're giving, especially when you're singing in church, you're giving back to God the breath that he gave you at the dawn of creation. You know, it's it's a symbolic exercise of, of praise. So when the national media is screaming at you, stop singing, stop singing, uh, something's gone very wrong. But yes, particularly. And I understand uh, it may be bad science, but I understand in crowded uh, church basements, it's one thing. Uh, there's so many enormous Catholic churches where, uh, you know, you're, you can do social distancing and have a choir. Uh, no, of uh, course. Uh, I mean, the, the 500 year old uh, tradition of uh, uninterrupted uh, even song, you know, uh, with within Catholic and Anglican services and in, in uh, London was interrupted for the first time in half a millennium, just stopped. I mean, made illegal by law for the better part of a year. They stopped singing. It's just, I don't know, Phil, we've got a lot we need to come to terms with here. Um, and we have to rethink our relationship with. Um, the pathogens all around us. Um, they're not all enemies. We need exposure to have long lives. And one of the reasons we've lived such long lives in the course of the 20th, uh, the last 100 years is precisely um, the mixing of populations, the increase of trade and travel and so on. We've, we've experienced more exposure and that's taken away our immunological naivete and, and made us much stronger. The immune system is a remarkable thing. It's scalable. I mean, we're, we were, we evolved or were created with miraculous technology baked into our very biology and it's called the immune system we decided not to trust it and we decided to trust fauci 
and pharmaceuticals <laughs> rather than rather than the the the, the equipment that's evolved alongside uh, pathogens in the world SARS-CoV-2 is hardly the first uh, pandemic there have been millions of others and, and there will be millions more um, and we have to we have to change our our, our attitudes towards this. Uh, well, don't you think we also have to change our attitudes towards the the prospect of death, which is going to occur, no matter what we do. <laughs> and uh, a part of what happened is so many people panicked because they thought they were going to die. Well, yes, they are. Maybe not this year. Maybe not next year. But we all will. And it's. It, we have a very strange attitude towards death. Um, you're probably more sensitive to that than I am. I, I'm a little puzzled by that, but I do remember Fauci's first press conference and with with the Senate and a Senate testimony, and he said he was talking about three, three and four percent um, death rates, which you know, not specifying case fatality rate or infection fatality rate or death per capita or anything. He didn't specify anything. It's the most unscientific statement ever. But I remember looking at all the senators and their faces turning white because um, they thought they were they were all going to die. And, you know, as, as if that's the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And it's a, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Um, people's attitudes towards death and and in particular people's attitudes towards named pathogens. You know, Mark Twain had this funny line. He said, every one of us is, is born with a deadly disease that's certainly going to kill us. And we're okay with that until somebody comes along and gives it a name. Then we all panic. That's, that's very perceptive, yes. <laughs> that's, that's very perceptive. Well, okay. Well, I uh, am grateful for you for taking the time to chat today and uh, i hope that our listeners will look up the brown and brownstone institute and the work you're doing and i think a lot of them will find it very eye-opening thank you for the work you've done throughout this pandemic i mean i do feel like we're i never wanted to be part of the remnant but more and more <laughs> i feel that i am but you know we none of us should lose hope uh, we are not doomed there will be a period of rebuilding and it should begin and maybe later, maybe sooner, but at some point we will rebuild after this disaster. I, I think because the perception and reality eventually, <laughs> eventually work themselves out and get into sync. And right now they're so out of sync that an adjustment has to come. I agree with that. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you, Phil. Hi, my name is Dominic Casella, and you've been listening to Phil Lawler's Book of the Month Club at the Thomas More College of Liberal Arts Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture. If you're interested in learning more about the center or getting other, uh, more of our content that we've been producing, videos, podcasts, articles, visit restorationchristianculture.org. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a monthly donor. Our good work would not be possible without your support. Five, ten, twenty dollars. Uh, it goes a long way here for our little operation. God bless and take care. Thank you so much.